will be fun. Well, welcome to 2018. I feel pretty uh, thankful that we made it and uh, that we are here with a chance to be the church together, be a church family together for another year. Uh, I wanted to start off our year with a few sermons, uh, kind of a mini-series through January, before we spend probably the most of the rest of the year in the book of Matthew. I promised Jeff that I would finish Matthew, because we started that last year, and he's like, you can't, you can't not finish it. Um, so we will finish Matthew, but I wanted to take uh, just four weeks here in January to talk about a, a topic, an idea called, called soul care. It's something that I think uh, is just incredibly important to us as a communion of saints. You can kind of think of these four sermons as like a state of the communion address, not a state of the union like the president gives, but that we are uh, God's people here by grace. We are God's saints, and so this is kind of a state of the union where feel like we are what I feel like God might do in uh, 2018. So this past year, uh, actually a couple years ago, Camille and I, we uh, thought before God called us here that we were going to go plant a church in Denver, Colorado. And so we went out there to meet with a bunch of different people and uh, basically spent like two or three days meeting with every pastor who would sit down and talk with us in Denver. And Denver's a really cool town. A lot's going on. A lot of changes are happening there. So it was very interesting to talk to these pastors, and it seemed like uh, most of the pastors that we were being able to meet with, they tended to be either young church planners that were you know, scrapping it together, trying to hold, make it happen every week, or they were the, the few grizzled veterans that had like actually made it in this like pretty progressive, post-Christian kind of culture. And one thing that was so weighty for Camille and I was that all the people who had made it uh, the, the, these older guys who had a, a few decades of ministry in the city under the belt were just not super fun to be around. They were, they were kind of, I think God's using them. I think they had good ministries or whatever, but they just, they, they had this like thin layer of platitudes over some just like hardness and, and bitterness. And not all of them were like that, but it seemed like definitely a trend. Like they'd been through some stuff and, and there's just this thinly veiled anger or bitterness or you know, this kind of biting sarcasm towards, towards people or other Christians. And thinking about that, hoping that by the grace of God, 30 years from now, I'm still in ministry, able to serve him one way or the other, uh, made me think, well, why is that the case? Why are they like that? I don't want to be, I don't want to be like that, essentially. And then this past week, I heard, uh, just connecting with some, some pastor friends, that, uh, is, is my mic doing weird things? Okay. Uh, that uh, a pastor acquaintance of mine, someone I kind of knew of and loosely worked with, uh, who was very successful, uh, ended up, uh, it came out that he's having an affair with a 19-year-old college student and is leaving his wife and this, this whole kind of family and ministry is blowing up. And I was processing this with another pastor friend down in Grand Rapids this week, and he said he had a buddy from seminary who just had this incredible youth ministry with this, this youth ministry that went out to high schools and just super dynamic guys saw hundreds of youth get saved and, uh, and they just filed for divorce. And I just kind of was, it caught me thinking, reflecting on some of the most influential pastors in my life, uh, kind of like through the, you know, celebrity pastor podcast deal, some of the churches that have had the biggest impact in my, in, in my life I've had major leadership changes because there was dysfunctional stuff going on amongst the, amongst the founding pastors. 
How do we process this stuff? How do we process the almost cliche that most of like our great Christian musicians end up divorced? What's behind this? In places where stuff is happening, where it seems like they're successful, where there's, by all metrics, there would, there would be good things happening, where people are doing incredible things for God, but their wives don't want to be around them. Or they blow up their families or just jump ship on everything that they used to say they valued. The answer is, I believe, is these two words that we're going to talk about for a month. Soul care. This, this theme that we're going to look at for, for the next few weeks. Look at what Jesus says in Mark 8.36. It's also on your bulletin. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? I don't, I don't know how you've understood this text in the past, but it's definitely partially referring to the fact that, hey, you can be rich and wealthy, but if you, you, know, if you don't know Jesus, you're not going to go to heaven, then what does it matter if you, you know, die uh, alone and you know go to hell and as a rich person you can't take anything with you well that's true i believe that's not the main thrust of it i think we see in jesus's words mark shows us and also luke and matthew they also have this passage in there it's not just worldly wealth or fame it's not just the fire insurance of making sure whatever you do on earth make sure that you don't lose your soul when you die but it's that right now are we losing our souls right now and what we're doing with our lives. Even in Christian circles, as we just talked about, even in ministry, you can lose your soul. That's the piercing part of Jesus' words here. What good is it if you record hundreds of worship albums but then run away with a 19-year-old? What good is it if you revitalize a thousand churches and write tons of books and maybe less controversial or just a very angry, unpleasant person. <laughs> the point is this, of this series. The point of our little January series is there is nothing more important than the health of your soul. There's nothing more important than the health of your soul. Your soul's communion with God, which is the only way it can be healthy, there's nothing more important. No amount of fruitfulness, no success in ministry, no different type of career, no amount of financial security, no quality of life is more important than the health of your soul. If you'll indulge me, the connection of soul and heart being very similar as it's talked about poetically in Scripture. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. Think of all the guarding we do of our money in our houses with our guns and our security systems. Above all else, guard our hearts because everything we do flows from that. And here at the beginning of the year, hopefully most of us are at least a tiny bit introspective considering our lives, considering what 2017 have, had, considering what we hope this next year looks like, what was good, what was bad, maybe make some goals. And here's what our, I hope our goal is as our church. Our, our church-wide resolution 
as healthy souls. We make year, the year 2018 the, the year of the healthy soul here at Big Rapids First Baptist and structure our lives so that our souls might be healthy. And today, we're going to look at the power of the ordinary life in soul care. The main idea for today is that healthy souls are cultivated in the ordinary. Healthy souls are cultivated in ordinary life. The health of our souls is an everyday, ordinary thing. But unfortunately, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you might have some baggage with ordinary. You might feel some shame because of how stale or ordinary your life feels. You might feel a lot of longing where if just this would happen, if I just had this breakthrough, experienced this radical thing, then I, I would feel okay. We want this to be the year where our spiritual walk with God becomes legend, wait for it, dairy. And so we're going to do a little church history today and trace some of, these, some of these themes. And maybe I'm the only one here, but I feel like this is pretty common. This, this, this disgust of the ordinary or this longing for the radical, for the extraordinary, I think largely we can trace it to our church cultural heritage of one man. I think I have a picture for him. Do we, do we, did I put him in there? That guy. Don't look too close at his eyes. You might steal your soul. I think that's what J.K. Rowling based the mentors on. But believe it or not, this guy was a preacher. His name is Charles Finney. He was a preacher back in uh, the 1800s. And he's the father of revivalism. Revivalism is a flavor of Christian culture that might not actually be Christian at all. And important distinction here, whenever you add ism onto something, that normally makes it terrible and wrong and destructive. So revival is really good. Revival means new life. We see God bring revival all over the place in Scripture. We want him to revive our church. But revivalism is when revival becomes the goal, where we do everything to try to manufacture or force revivalism. You, you, existence. Existence is good, but existentialism, when that's all there is, is sad. It's very depressing. So anytime you add an ism. So we're talking about revivalism. Charles Finney is the, the father of this movement, and he dramatically shaped Christian culture in America. I think we still feel it today. He became famous for innovative methods of sharing the gospel. He was the first to hold big celebratory outdoor tent meetings that came through town with a lot of hype, tent revivals. He was the guy that made altar calls very popular. He might have invented them, but he, he was the one that really made them mainstream. Altar calls, if you haven't been in church, are those times where at the end of a service, the piano starts real soft and the preacher brings it down low and like really calls you to come, come forward and, and make a big commitment or make a decision one way or the other. Charles Finney was a master of manipulating emotions to get people to, to give in to Jesus or make decisions for Jesus. He's, he's where we get the idea of accepting Christ or make a decision for Jesus or inviting Jesus into your heart. He's, he's where we get the pressure, if you've been around church, to know the exact second that you were saved, the exact moment that you prayed the prayer and got saved. Revivalism is almost completely focused on technique. Here's a, here's a, a direct quote from our, our main man, Charles fin Finney. Put him up here while I, while I read this, just so you can get the full effect. Can you get him? There he is. Okay. Conversion is not a miracle. 
or dependent on a miracle in any sense is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted Conversion or becoming a Christian is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. If you've ever felt pressure to get your evangelism game super tight so you know exactly what to say to help people become Christians, it's probably based in this cultural heritage. Because he, he was operating with just apparently he was a very gifted dude. He could really convince people and get results in some degree. But if you do it right, people will make a philosophical choice to accept Christ. There's no miracle necessary, you know, involved in the Holy Spirit. And one of the driving ideas of this movement was do great things for God, expect great things for God. They, this movement in Charles Finney, they were about highly emotional experiences with really dramatic, staggering numbers of conversions and blaze through town and put down 10,000 conversions and blaze on to the next town. Because for God to be present, something big had to happen. If we're going to actually see God do something, then something huge and dramatic has to happen. Let's consider some of the effects of this, this flavor of Christianity. If you've ever felt like your story of coming to Jesus is boring, because by the grace of God you grew up in a Christian home and you never did cocaine. Have you ever wondered if God really loved you because your life just feels so normal? If you've ever chased that on-fire-for-Jesus feeling through different books or music or events, if you feel like something's wrong with you because the growth in your life spiritually just seems so painstakingly slow, if you find it hard to have genuine joy and the small, everyday signs of God's grace to you. That might all trace back to our main man, Charles Finney, in this revivalism moment, this uh, do great things for God, expect great things from God. I experienced a little bit of the effects of this growing up where it seemed like the, the, the rhythm, at least in college, uh, in the ministry I was in, was a bunch of big hype at the beginning of the year to get people to sign up for the fall retreat in October, which then got people to sign up for the New Year's Eve retreat, the Christmas winter retreat, which then got people to sign up for a spring break mission trip, which then got people to sign up for a summer mission trip, and, and then repeat. So it was like my Christian life was just kind of strung to like, you know, one event to the next, and the next mountaintop experience. And I'm not saying God didn't work in those events or it didn't shape me at all. But it was like, in the meantime, it was just like, don't drink or sleep with your girlfriend and just try to make it to the next retreat or the next conference. And the reason I go into church history is, one, I think it's good to acknowledge that culture influences our understanding and our experience of the Christian life. And we, don't need, we, we, we shouldn't just swallow it whole. We should ask questions and consider it and line it up with Scripture. And two, I think there's, there's just a lot of peace in kind of understanding this ordinary life type of Christianity. I want to contrast it with what we see of Jesus in our sermon text. We're going to be in Mark 1 this whole month, so I encourage you to read it a lot. It's a really fun chapter. You see a lot of stuff really, it's kind of like a montage, if you will, of like Jesus in a rocky training montage kind of thing. We see him doing a bunch of stuff, pretty action-packed. Action we see him dropping the mic a lot. So I encourage you to read this a lot, but it's a, it's a narrative 
uh, which we're not going to read the whole thing, so we'll just kind of walk through it and touch on a few things and hit different parts through the month. Jesus is kicking off his ministry, Mark 1, the beginning. He's 30 years old. He's lived his life as a carpenter with Mary and Joseph. He was tempted and tried in the desert. He was baptized by John the Baptist. Heard God speak audibly, you are my beloved son, and whom I will please. My favorite lines in scripture. And now he's settling into his ministry. Look in verse uh, 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So he's settling into his ministry, and his big idea to kick it off is to go to church and teach. (laughs) That's the extraordinary thing that he does. But then he heals a man. We see later on he heals a man uh, of demon possession. While he's just trying to do his simple teaching deal, a demon-possessed man comes, and he casts out the demon. And now people start to get excited. So they're like, oh, maybe Jesus is doing his revival thing. He just performed a miracle, a very like, flashy thing where we, had a, we see a demon leaving a person. But look what it says in verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus is starting to get really famous. His, the word is spreading. But then look what he does. Look how he responds to his fame in verse 29. And immediately, everything's immediate in Mark, I love it. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. He leaves the crowd, he leaves his budding fame, and just goes to eat dinner. This is like winning the Super Bowl and then just going to go have soup with your high school friends. But then... He gets there, hoping for some soup, and it turns out the mother-in-law is sick. Look in verse 30. Simon's mother, mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately uh, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Seems like a practical miracle. <laughs> He's hungry. No. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So he, his fame starts to spread, and he just goes into a private home to, to get some food. And he does a miracle, and then word spreads again. And so now we have a horde of the sickest, most hopeless, helpless people coming to him. These were like people with like sprained ankles. They were people who had chronic pain or chronic fatigue or chronic issues, who had been relegated to an entire different class of society as sinners, as unclean people because of their illness. So they were just kind of stuck, helpless. And then they start getting healed. They start becoming whole. Imagine the hype. People who were given up from dead, people who had had pain their entire lives, people who had never walked are becoming whole. It's glorious. And look at verse 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So we get this picture of him just trying to get some soup, 
from a mother-in-law, and then he gets in this all-night healing session. And finally, the hype dies down. People fall asleep. And Jesus wakes up very early and goes into the mountain to be alone. He doesn't let his crew know where he is. He just slips out into the quiet of solitude. But folks wake up and they want the revival to start again. They finally find him and his disciples are like, come on, people are looking for you. People need you. Let's ride this wave. After all this hype of healing, his fame spreading, it's like he keeps trying to get away from it. Jesus keeps trying to get away from the crowds. And not just the crowds. He, it, he just wasn't that interested in miracles. He does them a lot, but it, it's almost always reluctantly that he does them. Look at what he says in verse 38. After they say, everyone's looking for you, he says, let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. He says, I must preach something far more ordinary than miracles. This is why I came out, to preach the gospel, to herald the good news, to, to make it clear that now sinful man can have a relationship with the holy God. Never has there been someone less interested in hype, fame, crowds, sensationalism than Jesus. Instead, we see his MO, the way he liked to do ministry, is slow walks and conversations and Long meals with people. He preferred those things over, over the flash and the glam of healing people and casting out demons. For Jesus, re- the revival he was after wasn't about big sensationalism and hype and emotional decisions or big displays of commitment or miraculous power. For Jesus, revival was about new life. New life, people returning into an ordinary, everyday relationship with God. Preaching the good news that God has drawn near to them. Now, where they are. Not in some fancy, glitzy, sensational version of themselves. What he clearly longed for was not fame, but for time with his Father, and for those that he loved to experience time with his Father. So as we consider 2018, the year of healthy souls, Lord willing, what might God have for us in this passage? There's three things. The first one is the everyday marriage test. Christianity is an everyday relationship. It's not an accident that when God is trying to give us language in Scripture for what it's like to have a relationship with Him, he uses very normal, everyday relationships as analogies. He uses a father-son relationship. He says the church relates to Jesus the way a wife relates to her husband. These are everyday relationships. This is one of my secret tests. And so far, I'm pretty sure it's a thousand. It's been a thousand percent effective. It's batting a thousand. A hundred percent effective. Whatever. I don't know baseball is whenever you're uh, listening to a preacher or reading a book, someone who's trying to inspire you or educate you, ask the question, 
or imagine them in a marriage with a real human. One time I went to this fundraising dinner uh, for a college ministry, and there was a speaker who was, you know, while we ate her rubbery chicken dinner, it was supposed to be funny and entertain us, and then, you know, share the heart of the ministry and call us to, to give to it. And he was this big, goofy guy with fake tan and shiny white teeth, huge personality. He just had all these, like, jokes and expressions and timing that was like, oh, he's done that a lot. He's done, he's done that a lot. And the whole time, I was just like, who are you, bro? And what are you like with your wife? <laughs> like, I, I could see that he was married. I just couldn't picture him, like, waking up every day to a real woman, talking with her, listening to her, helping her unload the dishwasher, just like being a person. It was just so theatrical and over the top. Imagine if Charles Finney was a marriage counselor. If Charles Finney was a marriage counselor, this is what all our marriages would look like. As we spend 51 weeks of the year feeling guilty and disconnected from our spouse, and then one week a year we go on this awesome vacation with all these romantic gestures and a powerful recommitment, a re- renewal, renewal of our vows, and then we go back to separate houses and just send each other a text or a grocery list every now and then. Real relationships, like in a marriage, if you think about what is a marriage going to be like, we think about that with God. A, a real relationship with God, just like in marriage, it happens in the trenches. It happens in the everyday life. It happens in the, the 45 minutes where you're all together before you go to work or school. It happens just on normal weeknights with nothing planned. And the same is true for our time with God, for our relationship with God. The best marriages aren't an explosion of fireworks that are beautiful and bright for a second and then leave us in the dark all the rest of the time. The best marriage works like, it it burns like a wood stove, this consistent heat that lasts a long time and just creates a, a warm space for people to flourish. That, that same idea, that, that, that wood stove type of relationship and marriage is, is what we're looking for with God. Healthy souls become healthy in an ordinary day-to-day relationship with the God who made them. Christianity is not a big firework decision that then leaves us in the dark, longing for more flash about enjoying the warmth of day-to-day rhythms with, with Jesus, enjoying the good life with God over a long period of time. It's about seeing and experiencing God in the everyday life, which brings me to the second takeaway. The goal is God. I think of the goal of the Christian life, sometimes we can want it to fix our problems, where I will do Christianity if it makes my kids not do drugs or gets my husband to be like this, or the goal of Christianity is to do stuff for God. In ordinary life, the goal is God himself. The goal of the Christian life is to experience the good life with God, not do stuff for him, not change ourselves for him, but to be changed by him, in his presence with him, through an everyday relationship. This goal language, this like objective language, we see in, in 1 Peter 3.18, where he says, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous in order that he might bring us to God. 
The reason that he died, the reason that we became righteous through the gospel is that we might be brought to God, with, have life with God. It's less about doing something great for God, more being with him. Do you think God needs our help? Oh my goodness, if our God is small enough to where he's up there hoping that we do stuff for him, he's not much of a God at all. The God who spoke everything that exists into existence, including you, is probably doing all right. When we get caught up doing stuff for God instead of growing to be with him, it's that our souls start to get unhealthy because our our relationship with God, our picture, our image, experience of God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Or have you ever been in, in Christian circles where the end justifies the means? I'm, because I'm important in doing a lot of stuff for God, I can cut this corner or tell this white lie or trample these people. Because I'm serving the church, I don't need to spend time alone with God. My, my devotions are doing this ministry. But God doesn't need us. Instead, he wants us to be with him. He doesn't need our good works. He calls us to be his children. And then join us, join him in what he's doing. I haven't been able to experience this too much, but why would you as a father... Let your five-year-old son help you do anything. Why would you ask your five-year-old son to help you do anything? It's probably not because you're at your wit's end and you just need a five-year-old's perspective. It's probably not because you couldn't do it faster by yourself. No, it's because it's a delight and joy to see him grow, to have him with you, to see him learn, to become more fully human. I hope this is encouraging because if I had to guess, I'd say the little bit that I know of you guys that I think a lot of us feel like we're kind of limping into 2018, even with good things. Like we, we got a few new babies, praise God, but it takes a minute to get acclimated and some of us are experiencing job losses and suffering, money problems, foster care drama, all kinds of stuff. And so when we look at 2018, I, I hope it's in, encouraging to let God do the work, the to see our job as being with God and then to let him change us. And when we make him, God himself the goal, experiencing life with him, it all of a sudden, it makes all the, the ordinary day-to-day stuff that we have to do an, an invitation to experience God in that. Because as we, as we, we still have to work and change diapers and drive kids around and pay the bills and fix frozen pipes. But because God is in those ordinary places, it means we get to see God. All those things come with an invitation to see God, experience more with him. And that's the third point. God is found in ordinary places. Jesus' fame spreads and he goes to house for dinner. People were all excited and looking for him and he woke up early and went away to the mountain to be alone with God. And he told his disciples, I want to go elsewhere and preach the gospel. I don't want to ride this hype. We see this, this pattern of Jesus. And I'd encourage you to read Mark 1 a lot this month and just consider the, these things that we see Jesus doing. He show, he's showing us what it looks like to, to be human. It's like Jesus is showing us practically 
what we see Scripture say, which is that God is in the still, small voice. He's not in the rushing wind or the burning fire. He's in the still, small voice where we experience an ordinary dinner with, with good friends, early mornings and silence and solitude and faithful proclamation of the gospel. These ordinary things we see Jesus just in this one little glimpse is where we meet God. You ever wonder why there's so little about the first 30 years of Jesus' life in the Scripture? Huge majority of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus we have, are just the last three years. He is 33 years on earth, and we don't know much about 30 of them. It's because they were fantastically ordinary. He was a carpenter. He had family, friends, eating, sleeping, working, resting, worshiping. We just got done celebrating Christmas, this truth that God came to men and dwelt among us, lived this perfectly normal, unglamorous life for 30 years. What, what might God be showing us about ordinary life? That he sent his son, God in the flesh, to live a ordinary life. If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then we can experience God in the mundane, in the, in the diaper change, in the yard work, in the home maintenance. We can experience God in the mundane parts of just being a church family together. Oh, this isn't, I don't think this is offensive, but sometimes kid ministry isn't a dream come true. And we have this all-hands-on-deck policy when it comes to our kids' ministry, where we have several teams, and they all wrote rotate through to take a Sunday a month because we want to serve our kids well and we also don't want anyone to miss church a lot. I think there's something glorious in just the ordinary rhythm of looking at your one Sunday a month to be present to our kiddos downstairs and say, what is God inviting me into? How can I, how can I show them who God is? As I laugh with them, share the truth of who God is and what he's done. This is the, that ordinary rhythm of our church where we show up to these ordinary, mundane things. And of course, it's not flashy. Kids might be stinkers, literally and figuratively. But we can experience God in these ordinary rhythms of being with our kiddos. Another ordinary thing, we talked about it with Zach and Catherine, is our connecting groups. We're not really going for flashy with our connecting groups, we're going for tacos. <laughs> is where we eat a simple meal together every week and we share ordinary life together and we let ourselves be known. We rake each other's leaves and we tuck each other's kids in, into bed and we feed each other meals when there's surgeries or babies are born. When the saints of God, God's people, come together and share life together, we experience what it means to, to, to know God more. We, we let other people speak into our life and show us blind spots because it's the thing about blind spots you can't see them because you're blind to them and so when we commit to these these rhythms like serving with our kids or joining a connecting group living life with God's people we can experience more of God we could literally go through almost every aspect of life and say what might God be inviting us into like oh your kids aren't sleeping what might God be inviting you into Oh, your job is a goober, or your, your boss is a, is a goober, and your job isn't fun. What might God be inviting you into? 